Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. All right, guys, we will go ahead and get started if you guys are ready. Um, first things first, as usual, I just want to pray for our night together. Um, and I look forward to hearing about what you guys have been talking about the last couple weeks that I've been gone. So we'll do some recap, especially with spring break, giving us a week off. We could probably all have a little bit of a refresher. So uh, let me pray for us and then we'll jump in. Father God, I'm so thankful for this day. And Father, I'm thankful for uh, your grace. Lord, the fact that each morning you allow us to wake up and, and enjoy this day, Father. And yet we know, Father, that there may be a day where we wake up and everything's recreated. And uh, so much of what we're talking about uh, is going gonna, is gonna to touch on that a little bit, Father. And, and we're thankful, God. We're thankful for the hope that you've given us. And, Father, we pray that as we, as we have our conversation tonight, uh, that it would just be edifying. God, that it would be beneficial and Um, ultimately, Father, that through it we could become more and more like you, but ultimately also that you would be glorified. Father, we are so thankful for your scripture and the fact that uh, you give us um, the words to have in our hands, the fact that we can open them in safety. Uh, But Father, also, uh, we're thankful that we don't completely understand it all uh, because the mystery is is thrilling. And we look forward to the day where you explain more and more um, of this to us later when we see you face to face. Uh, but Father, we are so thankful, God, that, um, that, that your word continues to provide uh, just an amazing, um, indescribable, unattainable uh, sometimes, God, um, mystery to it that ultimately is so glorifying to you. And Lord, we love you. And it's in your son's name, Jesus, that we come before you tonight. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work um, it's in, it's in uh, the goodness of all that you've done, God, that we get to speak to you now that we pray. Amen. Okay. So, did you guys like John and Chad? Were they helpful? They're smart guys, so I hope that they were. Um, I, I listened to the podcast, and so I know John didn't get through all of Chapter 7. Is that right? Um, and so we'll kind of, I'll try to do a quick overview of that as best I can. Um, but, um, and I'll, I'll try to, I'll really just, it's kind of hard to break the chapter up. You kind of want to know what came before it a little bit. So I'll do, I'll touch on it a little bit. Um, and then also I want to go back through the millennial views just to touch, just to give a quick um, recap on what those are. And then even as I'm going through the text itself, what I'll start to do as best I can is um, start drawing out some of those millennial views and some of the different interpretations that take place as we go through the text. Um, so first things first, though, are there any questions I can answer just starting off about either chapter 7, um, be, knowing that we're not going to be able to do that whole thing? Um, are, are there any questions I can, I can do about chapter 7? And then also, are there any questions just about the millennial views in general that I can clear up as well before we jump into it? All right, cool. Makes it easy. Well, uh, there are well there are four predominant uh, millennial views, I should say. There are a lot of millennial views, and the reality is, even within the predominant ones, there are a little bit of adjustments here and there. So the main one, uh, the main ones are 
dispensational premillennialism, which if you remember means that basically all of, all of time has been separated into dispensations. And that ultimately what we believe about this thousand year reign that is mentioned in Revelation 20 is a literal reign that's going to take place. But the pre, what the pre means is that Christ will come back before that reign begins. Okay? That is the general gist of dispensational premillennialism. Obviously, there's much more wrapped up within that. It has tenets like uh, the tribulation and the rapture. It has the ideas of um, the church and Israel being two distinct bodies of people that ultimately God has promises to. Um, that's, so that's premillennial dispensationalism. A mouthful. Uh, the next one is historic premillennialism, which is also called traditional premillennialism. The reason sometimes it's called historic is because it is the historic position of the church in general. Um, that is to say that the earliest church fathers that we have, they kind of uh, le- they generally took this position. Irenaeus, uh, Justin Martyr, uh, some of these early the earliest guys we have, which Irenaeus even of himself was a disciple of Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. So um, that, that's, an, that's an interesting factor when you take that into consideration. Um, so the historic premillennial uh, position basically says that Christ will come before that thousand-year reign and that that thousand-year reign is literal. The differences between historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism, at least the major differences, are that they don't believe in a rapture, um, and that they don't believe, they do believe that God has some certain promises to Israel that he's going to fulfill, but they don't necessarily see this gigantic distinction between church, the church and Israel. Um, but they do believe that there's some promises that they're going to fulfill, uh, that God's going to fulfill. And then in addition to that, um, they believe that ultimately um, when God comes, that, the, well, they also believe that the kingdom officially started after, after the resurrection. I should say that as well. Um, but there's a nuance to, they don't believe it's been inaugurated in a sense. Um, and so that inauguration, that consummation will come. So it's kind of similar to amillennialism, which we'll talk about in a second, in the sense that the kingdom has kind of begun at the resurrection, uh, but there's going to be a thousand-year literal reigning, physical reigning of that. And so they have a little bit of a, a, a specific nuance within that area. Um, and then um, ultimately the resurrection will take place. That thousand-year reign will happen, and then the judgment will happen. So that thousand-year reign is, a, is kind of when the saints will reign, and then um, it'll be peaceful, and then the actual judgment will take place. So uh, all millennialism is the belief that Really, that really, it's kind of. Um, I've heard they've been trying to kind of. Ch- the, theologians have been trying to change the name of amillennialism um, because ah, that a at the beginning there is actually um, a negative thing, a negative, uh, a negative aspect to the word in the sense that it means that it's it says there's no millennium, there's no thousand years, which is not really what that position means. It just simply means that the thousand years are more symbolic, they're metaphorical, they're not to be taken literally, but that actually the thousand reign, be, thousand year reign began when the resurrection happened, uh, when, when Christ ascended to his throne, and that actually now we're living in the kingdom, and that eventually Christ will return and resurrect us, and then we'll go to judgment. It's kind of just a little bit simpler. It's probably the simplest of them all in terms of the events happening. Um, and then the last one that we talked about was the post-millennial, which is that there will be a thousand-year reign. It's almost a progression of like, um, 
goodness, I guess. I mean, it's essentially, you know, the society is getting better. We're making, we're progressively getting better morally, um, even technologically. And then eventually it'll lead lead into this thousand year reign and then Christ will come and the resurrection judgment will take place. So those are some differences, right? So those are some differences. So now, any questions about that? Anything I can make particular about that? You guys are easy. Okay, yes. With these views? Yeah. Okay, so what, her question was, Mark, Christian, and Michael DeFazio have both made comments before that the rapture is not, is not something that they would subscribe to. Um, and what her question was, was how does the rapture fit into these, the premillennial, the, really the dispensational premillennialism, because that's the one that it's a part of. Um, well, and I would say that generally... Um, well, I, I, to make sure I understand your question right, are you saying how does the rapture fit into that millennial category? Well, I mean, like each one says no distinction between rapture and second coming, and you know the different aspects in these little descriptions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering, like, whenever it's no distinction between the rapture and the second coming versus there being a rapture and then a second. Coming. So, why do people believe the rapture? Is that what kind of you're saying? Yeah. Gotcha. There are. Three main texts that um, specifically have this idea of the rapture. And I believe it's Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4, and Revelation 4. Um, but mainly Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 4, I believe. Um, I need, I'll, I'll look it up later. But it's in Thessalonians. I know that. But basically, these are the, these are the big passages that people um, grab this idea of the rapture from. And the reason that Michael and Mark um, would probably say that they don't necessarily subscribe to it is that it is, the, it is probably the hardest one to really back up. I mean, really what we're saying with all these millennial views, if you, if you take a step back and you say, which one am I going to um, use as my theological construct, my, what I believe about the end times, is ultimately, which of these do I believe has the best explanatory power? You know, which of these do I have the most evidence for that I feel like makes the most sense out of Scripture, but also out of theology as a whole, right? And so, um, essentially, those, those passages are ones that people grab from and say these are rapture texts that they believe, like, seem to indicate that there may be some sort of rapture. Um, now, I can tell you the reasons why they think that those aren't the rapture texts, which maybe is more specifically what you're asking is that, um, I'll start with Matthew 24. If you look at Matthew 24, it starts with this questions by the disciples that essentially ask, uh, well, first they start off by saying, look at all these buildings. Look at the temple. Aren't they beautiful? Aren't they magnificent? And essentially what Jesus is like, yeah, they are, but uh, they're not going to last for very much longer. And then Jesus kind of goes into this big, long spiel about how the temple is going to be thrown down and destroyed. And then he also adds into that, Uh, this idea of when the Son of Man will come. And when the Son of Man comes, essentially, that is kind of like the climax. That is the climax of history. And um, what Matthew 24 says, which is interesting, that Matthew 24 as well is the only gospel that has this. I'm pretty sure that has this. I don't think Mark... Mark 13 is the parallel. Um, And I think that Luke... um, I want to say Luke uh, 20, maybe... 
some, it was around there, I know that, is also a parallel of this passage that's happening. Um, but Matthew 24, at least, is the one that includes this idea of the rapture being taken. So that, even that in itself, the fact that it's only this one gospel and not the others, that's interesting. But in addition to that, what that is talking about, it says, you know, one's grinding at the mill and one's taken away. Uh, the other one's working in the field or something like that. Um, and one's taken away. What, what they're saying there is um, ultimately what's, what's key, I should say, in this passage when it's talking about this, is it said it will just be like in the days of Noah. And so what, what and I, I'd probably agree with Mark and Michael on this, is that ultimately uh, in the days of Noah, who were the people taken away? Well, it was the people who were undergoing the wrath of God. And so, um, actually, it's the, it's the good people who are left in that scenario. And that's kind of what we believe, is that ultimately when the wrath of God comes, when the coming of the Son of Man comes, ultimately that the taking away is actually of a punishment and a wrathful nature, not a um, saving you from something nature. So that's, that's that text. When it comes to 1 Thessalonians 4, I think it's 4. Someone, is, it, is that right? You guys see that? What's that? Okay, 416, perfect. So it's talking about the, uh, really what Paul's answering in the book of Thessalonians. People are like freaking out because they're like, did we miss the resurrection? Like, or did we miss Christ's second coming? Actually, is what they're asking. And they're like, and Paul's like, no, you didn't. No, you wouldn't know. Trust me, you wouldn't know if, if Christ came. Uh, it would be very obvious. Um, but the reality is that even those who have died, we're not going to go to see Jesus before they do. You know, so you don't have to worry about whether you missed it or you know, what, all of that. Um, what he says is ultimately that when Christ comes, it will be loud and everyone will see and that we will go and meet Christ in the air. Now, specifically, one of the things that, and again, another word that he uses in that is this, um, he uses two of them. One of them specifically, though, that I'll hit on is, called, is the Greek word parousia. And that Greek word parousia is often used. Um, it's a it's a Greek it's a Greek word, obviously, but it's it's one that's often used with this idea of ushering a king into his kingdom from a battle that was way, that, uh, that was that he had won, really. And actually, we actually see this word used even in regards to Titus and Vespasian when Titus. Um, has just defeated uh, the Jews and destroyed the temple in 70 AD. This term is actually used even when they usher Vespasian, who's the emperor, and Titus, his son, the general, when they usher them into the city, they use this word parousia. And the idea is that all of these people flock to, uh, they flock to this um, king and they ultimately they usher him into the kingdom. And so it's not as if they are going to the king and then, and then disappearing into you know, a spiritual um, realm, but actually that they are going to the king and then welcoming back into the place that he always desired for him to be his home, which is the earth. And so uh, that that idea is um, that's essentially why that that text is a hard time. The other one, Revelation four, is a is a kind of a harder one to understand at all in general why it would be considered a rapture text. But it's actually when John's pulled into the throne room, and the reason that some people believe that's a rapture text is because they associate John um, as a symbol for the church in general. So they think that that could be a rapture text within Revelation. That's a that's kind of that's a harder jump to make. Uh, Matthew twenty four. But here's the deal: like ultimately, I think that there. I mean, if if ultimately, if you believe that 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 this position um, brings the most cohesion to your theology and to Scripture, I don't think it's wrong to believe that. You know what I'm saying? And I think that um, you know, I think part of the issue that even people have with um, 
with, between dispensational uh, premillennialism and historic premillennialism is actually that um, historic premillennialism is probably the view that you probably hold and you don't realize it um, because that is the one that, again, is the one that's gone throughout history. And it is there are so many similar things to the premillennial dispensationalism um, that... It's you know it's it's one of those things where you'd be surprised how much you agreed with this. Like I could say all this about the rapture, and you'd say, okay, well now I don't know if I'm convinced about the rapture. So does that mean I should be an amillennialist? No, not necessarily. It means that you might it means you might fall more in the historic premillennial camp that takes scripture a little bit more literal, uh, literal, and also allows some of those different nuances of the nation of Israel and stuff like that to take place. Okay, so um, I'll say that there. So I, I do think that in terms of the rapture, there's not a ton of explanatory power. That's my own personal belief, um, but I, that's not to say that there's none. You know, and so um, that's kind of, that's ultimately how we weigh and evaluate all truth in general is what holds the most explanatory power. And we're all kind of ultimately making decisions about that as we read the text. And so that's my, my goal is even as we get into to Daniel is to, to help with that. So I hope that makes sense. Does that answer your question? Yes. Okay. Any, any other questions about that in general? Yeah. I think I've looked at the different positions and I came up with yes. Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, they're all valid. They're all invalid. They get points, they get points. Yes. Yeah, they all have yeah, they all have uh, valid points. And I think the most important thing is not that you associate yourself with a certain point, but more so that you actually allow that point to change how you live today. And if you have a view of the end times that ultimately doesn't change how you live today or doesn't put you in line with being a better disciple of Jesus, that's probably when you're on the wrong track. You know? So, yeah. Anything any other questions? Yeah. I'm going to ask you the same question I asked when you standing here. Yes, yeah. Exactly how will God deal with Israel? Okay, so our question is exactly how will God deal with Israel? And so, again, this kind of goes to a, if you're interpreting the Bible in a historic premillennial or dispensational premillennial way, that you believe that ultimately there are some promises to Israel, um, specifically as an ethnic nation, that God is still going to um, follow up with. Um, and so I have... Really, there are two ways to answer that question, depending on what you believe Scripture is talking about. Um, now, I personally think that Israel is the church. I think that, in my personal opinion, that we are ultimately a part of Israel. That, um, you know, Galatians is a, big, is a key verse in this. That there's no male or female, Jew nor Greek. Uh, Ephesians 2 talks about the dividing wall of hostility being knocked down. And, and really, Ephesians, actually, if you read the book of Ephesians... That the thesis of the book of Ephesians is, how do I be a part of the family of God? Uh, because the first chapter 1 is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the, whole, in the heavenly realms, as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be predestined to be sons you know, and daughters. And that's the whole point, is that ultimately we are joining this family, and what's happening is Ephesians unpacking what that actually looks like now. And so you're part of the family in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he's like, so stop being divisive. Uh, don't, rem- don't forget that there's no dividing wall now. There, we're all making up the temple of God now. We're all becoming that mountain, right? 
uh, that we talked about in chapter 2. And so um, ultimately that's, that's the position I would take ultimately is that the, the promises of, to Israel have been fulfilled and actually that they're even more so being fulfilled in, in the life of the church. Now, from the other view, if you do take a view that says God still has some promises to Israel, um, if you take a historic premillennial view or a dispensational view, even that's going to change a little bit because the way that dispensationals view the nation of Israel is a little bit different than the way historic premillennials view the nation of Israel. Uh, the historic view, which I, I'm not as familiar with, so forgive me if, if you do subscribe to this and I jack it up a little bit, but essentially what they believe about the nation of Israel is that there are still promises about the nation of Israel, about their salvation, about um, uh, what God is going to do as a, as a nation and how they rule. But in dispensational theology, it's a little bit different. In dispensational theology, there's, there, it seems to me at least, and again, I could be wrong, is that there's an actual separation, a juxtaposition between Israel and the church so that it almost seems like they're not even one body at all. And I think that that's the difference maybe between with historic, uh, the historic view. Um, and ultimately, with the dispensational view, they not only believe that Israel will come back um, as a nation in and of itself to be rulers, but that they'll actually rule over the, over the Gentiles as well. And so um, this idea of the, the promises are similar, but they, they actually go up far and above that, and which is why in the, pre, in the dispensational view, you have in the thousand-year reign uh, the, actual, the Jews actually reigning, the temple's sacrifices being reinstituted. And you have that a little bit in the historic as well, but the differences are, um, they become more significant. Um, but does that answer your question? We have a friend that studies end times all the time and writes a paper on it. He gives it to me every week. Hmm. Well, I think about this a lot. That's great. It was that um, the Jews will come back to Israel before the Lord does, and he will soften their hearts, and yes. they will accept Jesus as the Messiah, not mm-hmm. just a prophet. Yes, yeah. When we were in Israel. He was nothing more than a prophet, and they were still right. going to rebuild the temple. It has a lot to do with that historically. Yeah. Um, they will rebuild the temple, I believe. Gotcha. Yeah. And so that would be, fit into that dispensational aspect and a little bit of the historic as well. Um, I have, so two comments with that is one, that's a possibility. Uh, and that kind of comes into even how you believe Romans 9 is read and 10 and 11 when it says that all Israel will be saved and whether that's ethnic Israel or whether it's, be, it's redefining Israel. Um, so that's one part of that. The other part is that too is I, um, the one thing I, I'm, always, I'm always careful to remind people is that the early church were Jews. You know, and I think that sometimes we think in our head that um, when the church began, it was just a lot of Gentiles coming in, which it was. But the apostles and um, uh, really all of the people that they were preaching to initially were Jews. Uh, and that's even how the scuffle comes in between uh, Peter and Paul in Galatians. I think in Galatians 2 is when uh, Paul is Paul saying, yeah, I had to give Peter the talk because he was saying all this stuff about uh, the Jews and or, or the Gentiles, he was acting like he was all good with the Gentiles, but then he was kind of giving him the cold shoulder when he was around his Jewish friends. And so um, we forget, though, that ultimately the catalyst, the the main population of Christ, of Christians, were Jewish, and they were Jewish not in the sense that um, you know they 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 rejected Jesus, but ultimately Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. You know, and so um, ultimately we we believe that. 
uh, all of us, I think, believe that ultimately the Jews did come to know Christ in a way that ultimately um, began the church. And uh, so that's, what, that's probably point one or one. But point number two is, if you do hold to that idea that eventually all of them will be saved, that there's, there will be a softening of their heart, um, again, like there are interpretations of Scripture that um, there's evidence for that for, you know? And I think that um, ultimately it just it depends on how you're weighing the explanatory power. I mean, that really is, to me, the biggest thing. And just in my personal study, I t- like I said, I tend to think that Israel and the church are one. I don't know that I- we'll see that shift of, of, uh, um, of, the, of kind of this ethnic um, reprospering, you know. But it could be. You know, I could be wrong. So, uh, but that's, that is an idea. And that has fueled a lot of political, a lot of political things as well. Um, because ultimately what happens is if that's true, well then we want to vote for things that like ultimately help Israel become a nation, that help expand beyond into the Palestinian areas right now, because whether you're familiar with this or not, it's divided between the Palestinians and, and the Jews, and even more than that, I mean, if, uh, even when we, when we went um, a couple summers ago, it was uh, if you go to the, the actual place where the temple was, where the, where the temple mount is, and it's like there's all kinds of stuff there, all kinds of religions that are participating there, and so you start to vote on, you know, where the where the uh, um, oh shoot, what's the word? Where the ambassador lives, whatever that's called. They embassy. Embassy. That's what it is. Yeah, uh, you start to try to move the embassy back to Jerusalem, right? So that's kind of where that that tug and pull. That's kind of why you're seeing that's a little bit of a bigger deal, especially for a lot of evangelical Christians, uh, because they do have an association with that. They've made that association. Um, but I think that that is. Um, I think that to me, it's just a little bit hard to see that in the text. But it certainly is there in, in places that how people interpret it. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, the discussion about the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the last couple of days, uh, Donald Trump made a proclamation that we support Israel's right to maintain control of the Golan Heights. Oh, yes, I saw that. Yeah. Deal. Uh-huh. Deal. yeah. But when that happened, I started going back and doing some studying in the Six Day War. If you I mean, it's like the, during the Six-Day War, God just flooded the place with angels because there was miracle after miracle, all these different things were happening during the war and so forth and so on. Very interesting to see. Mm. Now, I'm not going to say how much bearing that has in the discussion, but it seemed like God was very involved in Israel solidly establishing itself mm. as a nation. Yeah. I'm not going to get into the religious aspects of that. But something's going on hmm. in that respect. Yeah. I mean, and there certainly is. And it, honestly, it, that, that's the thing. I, 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 this is what I would say, too, is um, I, I, we should probably move from this pretty soon because I do want to get into the book of Daniel. And we could talk about this all night because it's good stuff. Um, certainly history, I think, I believe, is ultimately going to show us what God's been up to in some ways. You know, it's just like our own lives. We often are in the midst of it and we're like, why, God, or what's going on, you know? And then we look back a year later and we're like, oh, okay, I see, I see what you were doing. And I think that we should be really careful to, to, to uh, read too, too much into the historical realities of what's going on, you know, because it is, it, and what Daniel, I think, is going to tell us is that even he doesn't quite understand the full ramifications. And I think when we start um, inputting things like 
in, uh, we start assuming that God's doing something, then it ends up He's not. You know, that that could have worse ramifications for us in some ways. You know, um, so I don't know. There's some there's some balance there. But I, I will say this. I mean, because you you could probably t- look at a lot of other political. I mean, if you look at the Holocaust, you know, then you could you could say, well does that mean that God wasn't looking out for them then? You know, like what, what was happening there? Was he mad at them? You know, and so I think we should be hesitant to, to try to put too many theological factors, too many theological realities on the historical things that we're seeing unless Scripture specifically has told us that. Because ultimately, I think we're all in agreement that ultimately the Word of God is the authority. And the Word of God is going to, be, is going to explain a lot of the things that, um, that we need to know about. And so it's not that we, can't, that we shouldn't do that or we shouldn't speculate. It's okay to do that. Just be careful with it because ultimately it's the Scripture that makes the authority. And what we're really trying to do is not guess what's happening in the world. I mean, Matthew 24, Jesus is very clear about that. He's like, I don't even know when this is going to happen. And for you to try to figure that out is foolish. And actually at the end of Daniel 8, uh, Daniel says at the end of these visions, even after the angel just explains all this to him, he's like, I still didn't get it, you know. So let's just be careful about about all that. But you know, um, it's it's possible. It's possible. So, okay, Daniel seven. Let's jump into that. All right, let's get into it. So a couple of recaps. Uh, just a reminder about chapters one through six. Everything that we understood about chapter one one through six, everything Daniel set up, is so that we would believe chapters seven through twelve. 1 through 6, over and over again, was a display of God's power, of His control, of His sovereignty, of His wisdom. And that is a specific um, framework that Daniel has set up so that we can get into chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Because he's going to tell us things that are going to remind us that in the future, we still need to remember God's in control. That God is sovereign, that God is wise. And that in the midst of this plan that he has uh, foreknown, that he has set up, there will, be, um, there will be hard times and beautiful ones. And that ultimately what the scripture begins to point out for us is, is what's happening. So a couple things with chapter 7. Um, four beasts rise out of the ocean, right? Lion with the wings. Now, remember this too. Uh, lion with the wings. The wings are plucked off, right? And he's able to walk. The lion's able to walk. And it says that a mind and a heart of man has been given to him. We are reminded of that picture of Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar became like a beast, and then God gave his mind back to him, and he was able to become a king again. Uh, it's a very clear picture, a very clear allusion to Nebuchadnezzar. The next beast is a bear. He's got three ribs in his mouth, and he's on a side or something uh, coming out. Uh, we believe that's the Medo-Persian Empire. Um, it could be that it's just the Median or Median Empire, but I think that again, explanatory power. I, Jesus certainly believed. Um, well, I shouldn't say that. I shouldn't say Jesus believed that. He, we don't know if he believed that, but he certainly believed that he was the Son of Man, and that that the Son of Man coming was in the time of the Roman Empire. So the fourth beast, it would seem to indicate that he thought that the fourth beast was probably Rome. I'm making a lot of assumptions about what Jesus thought, but at least I think that it seems to be a good case. The disciples certainly believed uh, Josephus, early rabbinic tradition, generally ascribed the fourth beast to Rome. And then that third beast with the leopard, with the four, four heads, four, wing, or four wings, yeah. Um, that is the, the, the Greek Empire. Um, 
The fourth piece is you can't even tell what it is. You can't even tell what it is. And so what happens at that point afterwards is we notice that that fourth beast has ten horns on its head, right? Um, and then another one peeks its head, and three go down um, at that point. And it says that, um, Behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. So again, going back to our millennial views, some people believe that this was the Antichrist, uh, that this little horn was, was the Antichrist that ultimately would be speaking these great and magnificent things. Um, and that certainly is a possible interpretation of both the historic and dispensational. For an all-millennial, they would interpret that actually to be more so just a, a, a king, um, any king. And the reason is kind of actually because of what Daniel has set up for us already. If you notice... Um, if you notice that it, even when we talk about the little horn in chapter 8, it also will be talking these boastful things. And so sometimes the horn in chapter 8, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the horn in chapter 8 gets associated with the horn in chapter 7. And we'll talk about that a little more later. But the point is that lots of kings talk big about themselves, which is exactly what we saw in the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar did the same thing. What God could save you from my hand, Right? I am amazing. I'm on the top of my my palace. Look at all I have built. This was me. And that's when his mind is taken from him, right? Belshazzar does the same thing. And Daniel, ultimately, he says to him, how could you do the same thing when you know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? And he was actually a better king than you, right? And so Belshazzar is ultimately the king that's ripped away from him. So don't forget that ultimately these things happen with every king. Every king ultimately, not every king I should say, but lots of kings, especially ones that... Um, are not believers, are, are ultimately going to think that they are the cause of their own kingdom and the greatness that it has, it has come to be part of. So that's a couple things. Secondly, um, notice as well that it says, And as I looked, thrones were placed in the Ancient of Days, took a seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. This is um, chapter 7, uh, verse 9 through 11. And it says, A, th- uh, a thousand thousand served him, which is a million, a ten th- and ten thousand times ten thousand, which is a hundred million, stood before him. They're just saying big numbers, I think, to say there's a lot of people. And then it says, The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked, then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed. That fourth beast, its body is destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, and this is the most important part of this text and one of the most powerful theological motifs, scriptures used throughout all of the New Testament. Jesus himself quotes this passage. Not only does he quote this passage, he uses it to refer to himself. And it says this, And behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days. And he was presented before him. And what does it say? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So what is he saying? The same thing that he has said, the same thing that's been said throughout the whole book, right? Remember, this is this same pattern of language of the kingdom and its dominion and it lasting forever and ever has been said multiple times throughout the whole book. And now Daniel's saying it, but he's attributing it to the one king who will never, ever lose it again. Son of man. Now, what's important about this as well, two things. The son of man 
is a way of essentially describing um, a human. This is a human. But it's one in the likeness of a human. Now, what is meaningful about this is, well, there's two ways. The first one is that Daniel's already seeing the incarnation of Jesus. He's seeing that Jesus is becoming a human, or at least like a human. He doesn't exactly know the dynamics or the details of what's happening. But he's seeing that Jesus is like a son of man. He doesn't know it's Jesus yet, but he's seeing someone like the son of man. And Jesus attributes this title to himself. That's one part of this. One part of this is that ultimately he's seeing the fact that this God looks a lot like me. He looks a lot like me. Okay? How is that possible? He's being worshipped. How is that possible? Um, And he doesn't know. This is a mystery that is left. Daniel never completely understands or figures this out. But what we see is that the Son of Man approaches the Ancient of Days and he takes his seat on a throne. Okay, so Daniel already is beginning to see the fact that something amazing is happening. And traditionally, I mean historically speaking, this was the Messiah. All Jews believed that the Son of Man would be the Messiah that would come to save them. Now, what's the other meaningful part? So the first meaning is that there was this already this picture of, of, of a God who would be like a man, um, which is an amazing thing. But in addition to that, why does... This God look like a man, but the beasts, who are kingdoms and kings, do not look like men. It's because we, as men, have become less than men. Just as Nebuchadnezzar became less than a human, he took on the characteristics of a beast, he lived among the wild. And what we're seeing is that these kingdoms who are against God are rising up out of the ocean, not just rising themselves, but being plucked up. Uh, they're being they're being pulled up. They're not coming up themselves. They're being pulled up because God is in control, right? They're being pulled up and they are beasts because they have lost their humanity. Except for which one? Which one's starting to gain it again? The lion. It was given a heart and a mind back to it. There is one person in this picture that looks like a man and it is Jesus And it's a reminder for us that when Jesus comes into the world, the Messiah comes, it is a new Adam. It is a new humanity. It is calling us to what we had forfeited. And because we have become beasts, we had, by by beast number four, it's not even, we can't even describe it. I don't even know what it looks like. I've never seen a beast like that before in in my life. At least with a leopard, it had four heads, sure, but like I could say that kind of looks like a leopard or a panther, depending on which variation you want. You know, but, but this fourth beast, you can't even describe it. This is the point. This humanity in sin has become completely distorted. And when Daniel sees one like a son of man, he begins to see a God who looks like himself in the, in the clothed in flesh, incarnate. And when I say incarnate, too, let me, let me clarify. Incarnate means that I have put on physical something. Okay? So when people talk about reincarnation, what they're talking about is... For myself, if I were reincarnated, I died. Let's say I became back. I came back like a fly because I lived a really terrible life. Uh, I was reincarnated. I was reincarnated. I put on new flesh, but it was a fly and not a human. When we're talking about God becoming incarnate, we're saying that He put on human flesh. Okay, and that's what we're seeing: a new Adam, a new man, and He is exactly what we should have looked like. And He approaches the Ancient of Days, the Father, and He sits down next to Him. That's a powerful, powerful vision. 
Yes. Didn't Daniel study the Torah? Yes, Daniel did. Did he know that God made man? He created the world? Uh, he already yeah. knew that, did he not? Yes, I would say so. What, what, what's your question behind the question? Well, I guess the point is that he knew that we were made in God's image. Yeah, we were I think created he... created in God's image, so why yeah. would he not see him come as a, a man of... Not particularly just like him, but a man. Oh, I see what you're saying. So why wouldn't Daniel expect to see God That's look like a man? He would think, would he not? Well, we don't actually know a, a nuance within this. What the image of God is, um, is not necessarily something that we're completely theologically nailed down on. We don't know that that necessarily was the appearance of an actual man, or whether that even included the ability to have rule and dominion and even a will um, or the ability to think at all. You know, that could be the imago Dei, the Im- image of God. Um, so it's not necessarily that God looks like um, one of us, because before, uh, before um, Jesus became incarnate, we don't really know what God looked like. Uh, it's never really described. The, the closest we come is fire, flames. And that's, that's the biggest symbol that he, uh, he allows us to see. And even most of the time, we can't even see it. You know, the only way that anyone could have any sort of idea of what that would look like was maybe Moses. He got a little glimpse. You know, he came down and his face was shining. Um, and he had to wear a veil so that people wouldn't, because <laughs> he hurt people's eyes. So it's just that we don't really have a great picture of what necessarily the Father looked like. I don't think that um, the, Im- the image of God aspect necessarily means that physical representation, representation of a human. Um, if that, I don't know if that answers your question, but... Yeah, that's a good thought, though. I mean, why wouldn't he have expected that? And I think that part of it, too, is if you think of Daniel, he's not, for someone who is very familiar with uh, the Jewish um, laws and regulations and and, uh, the scriptures, uh, he's also not expecting to see a man be worshipped. When he sees the Ancient of Days and then he sees one like a son of man come and sit on the throne next to him and receive worship, that is going to blow his mind. Because that would be a complete uh, blasphemy, <laughs> you know. And so for Daniel, I'm sure he's very, he's very taken aback to actually what is taking place, you know, um, himself. But he does see, he only, he's reporting what he sees. And now, again, what we're talking about, right, we can look back and say what's happened now. Daniel in the moment was like, I don't know. But we as people can look back and say, this is what's happening. Uh, historically, but also theologically, what the what the word says. So, yeah. Any other questions about that? Let me run through a couple more things in the in chapter seven. Um, so the horn, the horn that comes up and it replaces the ten. Um, did you guys talk about that? Okay. So we don't really know who the kings are. Literally, no one does. It doesn't matter which millennial position you take. Nobody knows who the kings are. Um, they are they're different. Interpretations based off of the millennial view, though. So, uh, the dispensational millennial view actually believes that this beast is Rome. Those ten kings are ultimately um, kings that will come later. And especially that one that comes later, the one that comes up and gets rid of the three, it's literally Rome that has somehow come back to power and that one is the Antichrist that ultimately fools the world into kind of coming to him. So that's the interpretation if you're taking that premillennial view, is that Rome has come back to power 
Uh, whenever that, you know, whenever that happens in the next, you know, whenever God comes, I don't know. Uh, that's when that's when that will happen. Okay, so that's the premillennial view. The historic view is the Antichrist, um, but they would not believe that it's Rome. They believe that the, the beast is Rome, but they wouldn't take the ten kings as um, kings that will come in the future. Uh, they, they would expect the ten kings would be just, they were part of that Roman um, empire, uh, but ultimately that one is the Antichrist. That will come later. Okay, But it won't actually be from Rome. It could be from other, another earthly empire, maybe even one that you know, stemmed somehow from Rome. So that's another possibility within that. The amillennial position uh, would say that, again, this little horn that comes up is simply another king that believes he's more powerful than he really is, just like Nebuchadnezzar, just like Belshazzar, just like Antiochus Epiphany, which we're about to see. And I better get there quick because it's already 720, and we're still in chapter 7. So, um, okay. Anything else about that? I do want to make sure I cover it because chapter 7, it's, I mean, it's one of the most theologically profound chapters in Scripture. So um, anything else we can cover with that or questions you might have? All right. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? Is it making sense? <laughs> All right. Well, any way I can clarify it. I want to clarify it. Any way I can clarify it? I was thinking in one area we were reading last week where uh, the belief was that Christ come twice. Yeah. Okay, which, which millennium is that? The idea that Christ will come twice is the premillennial dispensation. Because he comes once. And brings, takes the church out. Yes, and then he comes again for the final judgment. Yes. Yes. Does this church not believe that? Um. That is the rapture, right? Yes, that would be the rapture view. I would say um, that the church as a whole, I don't know that we even take a millennial position. I, th- I Like as a church as a whole. Um, I think that we have, I, I could be wrong about this, so we could look on our website later or something. But I think that um, in terms of what we believe, like we really don't think this is an issue to, to be divisive over. I think that's part of it. But we're really just kind of... What we say is Jesus is going to come back and there will be a judgment. There will be a heaven and hell. Um, so, but in terms of the church as a whole, I'm not, I don't know what our... I don't think our, our church has a specific position. But I'll look into it. I'll let you know. But I think... I mean, I can tell you what a lot of our staff would believe and maybe even a lot of what our members believe, but... I don't remember where we read that, but we read one area where he came... He came twice. Was that in uh, 8? When he comes twice. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't have it marked in my Bible. I don't have a lot of things marked in my Bible. (laughs) If I find it, I'll get Yeah, if you find it, let me know. But also, you know, we have a couple more weeks too. So if you want to bring it back another time, that's totally fine. Anything else with chapter 7? All right, we're moving on to chapter 8. Okay, so chapter 8 comes. The third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. This is verse 1. So what I'm going to do with chapter 8 is I'm going to just clump the, both the what Daniel saw and what the angel Gabriel explained that it was. Okay, I'm going to lump them together. That way we don't have to read all the visions and then read all of them again but explained. I'm just going to lump them together, so I think that might help us go by faster. 
Um, so uh, let me read. I'm going to read verse one and two, and then verses fifteen through eighteen. Okay. So verse one through two. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel. After that, which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Verse 15, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Okay. So I'm going to run through the historical details real quick because we need to get to Antiochus Epiphany, and that's going to take me a little bit. Okay. Which version are you reading? Um, I think it's the NIV. No. no. ESV then. Yes. Okay. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, so ESV. So why do you ask? Were there some differences there? Yeah, there are some differences. Um, do you want to point out a couple of them? No. <laughs> You're like, I want to get through this thing. Okay, let's get through it. So Belshazzar, as we, as we are reminded, was a co-regent with Nabonidus. Nabonidus was the king of Babylon, right? But Belshazzar was his almost like a client king that he left in charge of Babylon while he went off and did his own thing farther away. Uh, what we believe is probably, if this was before, um, obviously the feast that we saw in chapter 5, just like chapter 7 was with Belshazzar as well. This would have been before the feast that happened in chapter 5. Daniel's maybe in his you know, 50s, 60s, or maybe around that age. Um, and ultimately, what we see is that Daniel is in Susa, which is the capital of Elam. It's about 200 miles away from Babylon, which um, I gave you some maps. Um, and I... Should have put them in better order, but the top one's the Persian Empire. The second one's the Medo-Babylonian Empire. If you look at the Persian Empire, Susa is right where that line begins um, on the right side. So it's, that's where Susa is. That's the capital of Elam, but also becomes the capital of Persia. Um, we don't really know if his vision was happening in this place or if his vision just included the, the fact that he was in this place by that canal. That canal is, is, a, is close by. Um, and so we, we're not exactly sure. That canal is no longer there. It's dried up. But from what we understand archaeologically, it was pretty close to that area. Uh, we know also that Esther and Nehemiah lived in Susa. Esther's book mostly takes place in Susa. There's a, where you know, she's involved with the stories that are happening there. And then in addition to that, Darius I, uh, his winter palace was there. Uh, and he, would, he ultimately made it the administrative capital around 521 B.C. And also, just an interesting fact, the Code of Hammurabi was there. So if you know what the Code of Hammurabi was, it's one that is very, very old and similar to the Ten Commandments. And we found that in 1901, I think, or 1902 um, in, this, in this capital. Notice in verse 15 that Daniel is once understanding for this vision and he's seeking it. He's like, I, I want to figure out what's going on. And he needs to have it explained. And it's kind of similar even to what's going on in chapter 7. He, this desire for explanation. And so, um, and so ultimately, he, he, Gabriel's introduced by this voice that's hovering. What we, what kind of the picture that it gives us, that's a voice like coming from above the waters, which is remind, reminiscent of Genesis. If you remember in Genesis 1, uh, God 
hovering above the waters, that spirit hovering, and then his voice creating everything. But there's this, there's this voice that comes from above these waters in between the banks, it says. So in be- the banks are obviously you know, what people are walking on, the rivers, the canals right there. And, and the voice begins to speak. Gabriel, tell this guy what's up. And so Gabriel, this is the first time an angel's mentioned in Scripture by name. Uh, not mentioned in general, but by name it's mentioned. And, obvi- and ultimately this would become the angel that... Um, provided the annunciation of, of uh, the, the Savior to Mary and, and even to Zechariah in Luke 1. And so it's really interesting. Uh, Gabriel comes into, into play here and he begins to explain to Daniel the vision, what's happening. Um, he, Daniel ultimately falls into a pretty deep sleep, which is similar even to Adam uh, when he falls into these, uh, a deep sleep so that um, God can take a rib from him and create woman. Um, it's also... Now, reminiscent of when Jonah fell, fell, fell asleep when the turbulent boat uh, you know, was going in the storm and he falls, falls asleep and everybody else on the boat's like, what's happening? And he's just asleep. You know, this idea of this deep sleep coming over happens to, to, to Daniel. And he, when, he, when this happens, this, he you know, falls and, and ultimately he's taken into this vision. And that's when he begins to be explained to what it is. Now, what the angel says uh, in verse 17 is... So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Now again, this is a place where there's some deviation interpretation. Does this time of the end mean the time of like the end, the end, like the end of space-time as we know it until the new heavens and new earth are created? Or is this a time of a specific fulfillment? Is this uh, the time of the end of, um, of Daniel's vision of like what's happening so what what exactly is it the time of the end for if you think that if you if you fall on those pre-mill um historic or the pre-mill historic or dispensation i'll say pre-mill for now pre-mill uh you're going to take that to be more of the time of the end then historic will will, kind of can go either way if you're historic can go either way um, millennial will take the approach that the time of the end is actually more so um, talking about the time of the end of this specific vision of, of specifically what we will find out to be the reign, um, uh, well, the, the battle between the Median and Persians, uh, Greece and its rise to power, and then, obvi- and then its division into four different kingdoms that ultimately would result in Antiochus Epiphany, which we'll get to soon. So um, that's, the, that's the view that we would take. And the reason um, we take that is, again, there are many times when the time of the end is used, and it doesn't, it's not necessarily saying like the, time, the end of all time. It's just saying the time of the end of these specific circumstances or fulfillments. Um, so when we get into verse 3, that's kind of where we begin to take place. He falls into this sleep, and he goes into this vision. And this is what the vision consists of in verse 3 through 4. He says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Verse 19 is the explanation. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the, of the indignation. That indignation is the wrath, the, uh, the, the wrath idea, the wrath that's being poured out. Again, we're talking about whether is this wrath at the end of time? Is this wrath just at the end of this specific um, event? It's for you to decide. 
All right. Uh, but the wrath of God, the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And so again, you know, we've talked about what those beasts signify, what the statue signified, whether that second beast was just the Median Empire or whether it was the Median and Persian Empire. And this is one of those texts that we point to to actually continue to help say it was probably the Medo-Persian Empire. That even when Darius, although Darius is separated as a Median king, when he's mentioned, it's usually in combination with Cyrus, the king of Persia. And so uh, this is another way that we look and say these, these empires are tied together, the Median and the Persian. The Median kingdom was initially set up. What, if you notice what it says is that um, it had two horns. In verse 3 it says it had two horns. Both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. And that's because the Median Empire was generally the bigger empire at that time um, until the Persian one grew to such substantial power and then ultimately absorbed and assimilated media into its um, empire when it became known as the Median Median Persian um, Empire. So that's that idea of that, where's that, how's that horn working in there? It's that horn's growing up, it has that higher one, but it came up, it came up last because that Persian Empire came up after the Median power um, was really held, okay? And that west, it says it charged in uh, west and northward and southward in, cha- in verse 4. And we, we know about the Medo-Persian Empire is that it, it had conquests in those directions. Um, it, it subdued Babylonia, Syria, Asia Minor. Um, it made raids upon Greece. And that was to the north. Armenia, Scythia, and the Caspian Sea to the south. And Egypt and Ethiopia. Um, or, I'm sorry, to the south was Egypt and Ethiopia. And then to the north was those other ones. Uh, to the west is Babylonia. So anyways, all that. You can kind of see it on the map a little bit on basically what area the Medo-Persian Empire controlled, that Persian Empire controlled, okay? So we're kind of beginning to see what exactly Daniel's seeing in the vision, what he's talking about, but more importantly, what he's, what he's kind of prophesying. This hasn't happened yet for Daniel, so he's kind of just thinking about it. All he knows is that they're going northward, westward, southward, and what we know historically is that that, in fact, did take place. Um, and so that's kind of the beginning of that. Um, and so let's go on to verse 5 through 8. It says this, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. So a male goat comes. There's a ram, two horns, right? One's higher. Then a male goat comes. And it says, without touching the ground, this thing came. So I don't know how it's hovering. Well, I guess, yeah, it's hovering. Which maybe perhaps is because if we believe, you know, uh, what ultimately the, the angel says is this is the Greek empire. And so if, if we do assume that that leopard, um, that, that beast, was the Greek Empire, that had four wings, right? And so um, this, this hovering, ultimately, it's just blazing across the ground, uh, but it's not touching it. It says, And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his horn. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground, and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And then in verse 21, now we'll go to verse 21, which is the explanation. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. 
As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Okay, so the goat is Greece, right? But specifically, that horn is Alexander the Great. This is basically accepted across the board, no matter what millennial view you take. Uh, mostly because basically Daniel says it. Like, this is Greece. The, the, the ram was the Medo-Persian Empire. And what we see is this horn which dominates. Now, in about 323, I believe, um, B.C. is when Alexander the Great came to power. He inherited the kingdom from his father. And he was tutored by Aristotle, which is, that's pretty cool. Uh, to say. Uh, so he was tutored, tutored by Aristotle. Within only a year uh, was he beginning his military conquests and winning. And within three, he had conquered almost the entire um, ancient Near East. This guy was a legend. So, literally. I mean, we still talk about him. So, uh, But uh, he was doing amazing things. I mean, he was expanding the empire farther than anybody had before. And you'll notice I have on there that the Alexander's empire, I believe on the second page of those maps, where you can kind of see where his empire would begin to expand. Now, unfortunately for Alexander, uh, his, he, didn't, he didn't live for very long. He died about 10, 12 years later of a fever. I mean, the guy was a military beast and ultimately would die, died of a fever. Um, at least that's what we believe. And we're not really sure exactly what happened. But um, his goal was essentially to make the entire world Greek, to make it all Hellenistic. So if you've heard that word Hellenistic, that word Hella, or it's really like, it's really like Ella in, um, in Greek, but it's, it's the original word for Greek. And so when you hear Hellenistic, really what they're saying is, Make it Greek, or it's Greek. It's Greek culture. Um, and this is where um, a helpful part came into the play of what we became, uh, or what language we spoke in. He, he ultimately was a big, big part of what made people begin to learn Koine Greek. Koine Greek is what the New Testament is written in. Most of it, anyways. M- almost all of it. There's like maybe a portion that we think Matthew might have been Aramaic, but we're not really sure. But we have it in Greek as well, we have very old manuscripts in Greek. The, whole, the point is that that was what our, our, our uh, New Testament was written in, and that became the common language. It's koine is common. That means common. So common Greek. And that language began to be spread amongst the entire empire, so they had one language to speak in, which ultimately helped with trade. It helped with um, getting messages across to every single person and them knowing what it was. It was solidifying. Again, doing what... The Babylonians and Persians had already done, which was assimilating people into their empire and making them ad- uh, adopt their cultural values and religions so that way they could control them better. Instead of just wiping them out and taking all their stuff, they could actually expand their rule, their power, and their money uh, by, by just making them become like one of them. And so that was his goal. But when he died, uh, he had two sons. Both were murdered before they could ever inherit the empire. And from that point on, there was essentially a 20-year struggle um, between who would actually become the king of Greece. Now, what would happen is the kingdom would become separated into four different kingdoms, which I also gave you a map for. It's the last one. And the source I was using for those other maps didn't have this one, so I had to find another one. But those four kingdoms, the geographical areas there, are the ones that 
um, ended up being divided amongst them. So if you notice, uh, Ptolemy had Egypt, Cassander had Macedonia, Seleucus had Syria, and Lysicomus had Thrace and Asia Minor, those areas. Now Seleucus is the one that will ultimately become uh, specific to our story. Not because he as a king does, but because down the line, um, after a pretty long period, right? So about 300 to 300-ish, essentially, let's say 300 B.C., is when these kingdoms would become established at least kind of firmly. But then they would all, there was still battle going on. I mean, when Alexander the Great died, the, the, the Greek Empire, it, it, just like Daniel says, it would never have a, they, new kings would rise, but there would be no power that would be the same as that matched his. Um, and so really there's just this fighting that goes on for so, so long. And eventually what it leads to is the little horn that we see that comes up which is Antiochus Epiphany. Again, um, I don't think that there's any millennial view that would disagree that this is Antiochus Epiphany. From what we know of history, certainly we could be wrong, but from what we know of history, it was Antiochus Epiphany. Now, um, I will pause there for questions before I go any further. So any questions about that? There's a lot, I know. I am probably overloading you guys. The amount of content that we have gone through already tonight has been a lot. So anything else? Any questions with that? Don't be bashful. Anything that I missed? Any comments you want to make? Mike? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Yes, for sure. So, in case you guys didn't hear his comment, he was saying just a reminder that the context that this is being written in is for Daniel to have comfort, because ultimately he's still in captivity. He's still in a place he doesn't want to be, uh, surrounded by a people and a culture that keeps changing, and that he doesn't want to be around necessarily. Um, and so, ultimately, what we must remember is that the prophecies. Um, what Mike said is our pastoral, and that is true, absolutely. And that's what we'll kind of begin to see as we get to the end of this as well, um, that we'll kind of draw out a little bit more of the, why does this matter for me? Why does this matter for me? We'll draw that out a little bit more. So, anything else? All right. 744. We can do this, okay? All right. Verse 9 through 14 says this, Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. I will go ahead and just tell you, that is true of Antiochus' reign. That happened. Uh, So we don't have to talk about the details of it. We can keep going. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, which 
most commentators believe that this prince of the host was probably God, um, at least that I've read. It could have also been uh, that this was just some sort of angel of some sort. Uh, But the point is that this little horn is trying to set itself up as great as God, which actually, in Tychus Epiphany, that word epiphany, he often was referred as, even on the coins that his face was on, was theos epiphany, the manifestation of God. He saw himself in in this category. And so, true even of Antiochus, what we know of him. It says, And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. Now, because of transgression. Do you guys all have that interpret- that uh, translation? Rebellion. What do you have? Because of rebellion. That's another way to look at that. And we don't know if the transgression or the rebellion is, go- is going on on behalf of Antiochus or if it's the people of God. Uh, both interpretations have been taken by, by all the millennial views. And it says, And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful, rightful state. Now we go to verse 24. This is the explanation. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. Again, against God. And he shall be broken but by no human hand. Now, you guys remember that. By no human hand. That's what was talked about when we talked about that stone and coming from that mountain, destroying that statue, right? He uses that same language, by no human hand. And verse 26, The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Okay, so again, little, little horn, uh, basically everyone agrees this is Antiochus Epiphany. So, I'm going to zoom through his story, even though it is a really good one. And, and it, most of the, the historical sources that we have from this come from First and Second Maccabees, uh, which are books, um, essentially, we kind of talked about the fact that in the Catholic Bible they have some additional books that kind of cover the history of the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Most of them do. Some of them overlap, but that's kind of the gist of them. They are the history between the Old Testament and the New Testament. They're sometimes referred to as the intertestamental period. Um, they are called the Apocrypha. They all are also called the, Deuteronom- the Deuteronomical can- Canon. So all that to say, these are books that we don't consider Scripture, but, um, the, but Catholicism uses them within their Bible. And they are, what we said before, is that they're really helpful historical sources for us. And that regardless of whether they're, we don't think they're authoritative, but we don't think lots of historical sources are authoritative, but they're still helpful, right? When we start talking about any historian. So the Maccabees are the ones that really describe the life of Antiochus. And this is how the story goes. Antiochus Epiphanes began to reign, okay? And he became a great emperor. Uh, Not great in the sense that he initially expanded his kingdom like crazy, although he did. Uh, but great in the sense that he was able to win a lot of people over by flattery and deception, which is what Daniel notes as well. Antiochus decided, um, just like Alexander, that he wanted to Hellenize every single person, every neighboring nation. 
and that included the Jewish Empire. And so he began a process of doing so. Now, what is also noted in both Josephus and the Maccabees is that the Jews were already beginning to acquiesce to this request, even kind of before it was um, prompted to them by Antiochus. What they begin to do is essentially adopt all of those cultural values, all the religions that the Greek Empire holds. But not everyone does. And eventually, after a while of Antiochus' reign, um, and he, but, I mean, he does some terrible things. He comes into to, to, uh, uh, Judea and into Jerusalem, and he begins to basically kill anyone who won't adopt, this, won't adopt their values. He begins to um, threaten mothers if they circumcise their child in regards to the Jewish religion. He'll kill them and their child, and he does that because people won't listen. They want to be faithful to their God. And he ends up basically... Uh, really uh, being cruel in, in so many ways to the Jewish people. Eventually, it gets so bad, he sends a general there where he says, I want you to make sure that they sacrifice to me on the altar in their temple. And so what many people believe is what happens is the general comes and he gathers all the people of Israel, as many as he can at least, and he wants, uh, he says, he basically orders them to sacrifice a pig on the altar. Now, if you, you we know, I, I, most of us probably know that this pig was, was something that ultimately is detestable to the Jewish religion. It's an unclean animal in every way possible. And that's what they want to sacrifice in their temple on the altar to completely reject the Jewish religion and adopt Greek cultural values. Well, what happens is um, the general asks one specific man to do this by the name of Mattathias. Now, Mattathias says, I absolutely will never do that, ever. I will never abandon or reject my faith. And this, um, well, and we don't know whether it was a Jew or whether it was another person in the Greek army. Josephus says it was a Jew. The Maccabees don't necessarily make it clear. But what happens is this, this person Therefore, just grabs the, the, grabs the sacrifice and just makes it right then and there. And Mattathias, in his anger at what has taken place, at what, at what perhaps maybe his people have done, he not only kills the person who made the sacrifice, he kills the general. And now he has started a holy war, essentially, with, uh, not a holy war, necessarily, but a war, in verse for him, with um, Antiochus Epiphany and the, and the Greek empire that, that, he, that he reigned over. So what happens is him, he basically makes this gigantic speech. He says, if anyone is with me, if nobody wants to reject their God, if, nobody, if everyone just wants to be faithful to the, to the fact that God is good and he's still working and that he will prevail in his promises, then let's go. We can all leave here right now. We can be safe. We can get out into the desert and we leave. And so as many people who will, not, not all of them will, we said a lot of them hold back, right? Because a lot of them have already adopted these cultures. They want the Greek empire to come in. And so he leaves with a bunch of people who agree to do this. So what happens is um, they begin to go out in the desert and, and um, uh, Antiochus hears about this. Essentially what happens is Ju- uh, Judas ends up be, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Mattathias dies and his son Judas, the Maccabee, um, begins to become the leader of this, the people who ended up coming. Okay? And Judas ends up going to war against 
the forces of Antiochus. And over and over and over again, he somehow wins. A smaller army, but he always wins. And he even says this speech, uh, this speech is recorded by Josephus. He says, Oh, my fellow soldiers, no other time remains more opportune than the present for courage and contempt of dangers. For if you now fight manfully, you may recover your liberty. And he goes on, but he just, he pumps up the soldiers and he gets them to, to go and they defeat all of these armies with so less than what the Greek Empire had at the time. And it's just an amazing thing. Eventually what happens is he frustrates Antiochus so much by the fact that he keeps winning that he finally says, God has given us victory. And what he does is he goes back to the temple and he rededicates the temple. He gets all of the, the ridiculous pagan things out and he, and he kills anyone essentially that, that ultimately tries to stop him or tries to implement anything else. And he rededicates the temple and they finally, for the first time in, in I think it's two or three, three years, in first time in three years, which we'll talk about in a second, in first time in three years, he is able to allow the temple to become a place of worship again. And they light the menorah and they celebrate. And this is what becomes known as Hanukkah. This became known as this event, the rededication of the temple, which you'll see in John. Uh, is talked about in John. I can't remember what chapter. But when when uh, Jesus comes to enter the temple for the Feast of Dedication, this is what they're dedicating. This is the, the event that they're remembering. It was, uh, it was an amazing point in Jewish history. And this is everything that Daniel is recalling. This is everything that Daniel is recalling. And he's saying... Uh, and let's see what time is it, 7.54. I'm going to have to sum this up real quickly. Okay, so a couple things. The 2300 evenings and mornings, what are those things? Um, generally speaking, I'm, I'll just say this. Most people, most people say that those are days, 2300 days, which accounts for about six years and four months-ish, okay? That was about the time that Antiochus began his intrusion into uh, the, Juda- uh, the Judean area in about 171, okay, 171 BC. And when he finally got out of there, it was about 165 BC, which is when this rededication of the temple began to take place. There was no sacrifices going on because of what Antiochus had done. And when, he had, and when uh, Judas and Maccabee restored the temple, they began again. And that's what we are seeing in this text. And that is what Daniel is trying to encourage his readers with, going back to Mike's point. The point of all of this is not that we have different opinions on anything. The point is that God is in control. And I, and I, I want to apologize if I got too into the details. And you know, I don't know how many people want to hear all that historical information or all, all the different themes. I just want to make sure I respect them all. But, but regardless, this is the point. God is in control. And this was the, one of the worst times in Israel's history. And God said to Daniel, God revealed it to Daniel 400 years before it happened. 400 years before it happened. So that when it did, they would remember that God is in control. And if we've said it once, we've said it a hundred times with this book, it doesn't matter what the trials you are going through now. It doesn't matter if there's a tribulation later on in life or whether you're going through it now. The point is, God is in control. And if you feel at any point that God doesn't hear you, that God isn't with you, that there's some level of disconnect, this is what this story is for. God is in control. And His sovereignty and His kingdom, His dominion will never end.
So I'm going to wrap it up with this. Again, uh, at the end of this vision, Daniel feels sick. That's the last couple of verses that we didn't cover. Daniel feels sick. And he says, I still don't get it. Can you imagine a guy seeing everything that's going to happen? But we get to look back. And now we can at least say to some degree, maybe not all, not, maybe not all the way, but some degree we say, I get it. And that is a God worth worshiping and praising, even in the midst of when that kind of situation might come upon us. So I want to pray for us. And uh, thanks for hanging with me through all those details. And if seriously, if you have more questions, just come ask me. Uh, and, you know, maybe we can, I don't know. I mean, does that stuff interest you guys or is it too much? Raise your hand if it interests you, you like it, it's okay. Raise your hand if you're like, I like it, but like, maybe not quite as much. Okay. Well, you guys are like, I'm not going to raise my hand now. So, anyways, um, I love this stuff. And the more that we know about Jesus, the more that more we know about Scripture and the Word of God, um, the more that ultimately it makes us become like Him. And more than that, it makes us understand His will. Because we don't always understand it. Um, so, I appreciate you guys. I'm pray for you. And then you can get out of here. Father God, I'm so thankful for this day and everything that you've blessed us with, Lord. And I pray, God, that you would use a message like this to rejuvenate us. Our idea of what you will do in the future must change how we live today. Not only to glorify you for the blessing of comfort that we experience, the people in this room, we know not everyone does, but this room does. Father, we can glorify you for that. But also, God, when things get bad, whenever whenever we question, God, whether you're there, we're reminded through texts like this, that you are emphatically there and that every bad thing is still being used for a good one. And Father, that all of your glory is still being maintained, established, and used uh, throughout all of these moments. God, we are reminded, Father, that you are worth worshiping through it all. And Father, we pray that our anticipation of you would grow as we see how amazing you are your power and your wisdom, God, how great it will be to see you face to face. Father, we're thankful for your patience. Uh, we, can, we repent of the times where we think uh, we are where we need to be, even though we're far from it. And Father, we look forward to the day when you transform us back into the image you created us to be and that we are able to understand these mysteries a little bit more and glorify you a little bit more. Father, I hope I've been helpful uh, for my brothers and sisters tonight. And God, I pray that you would continue to work in their lives in a mighty way, that this would just be one step on the journey toward ultimately becoming a disciple, a follower of you, and uh, allowing your goodness to, to be seen even in, in the best and worst times, God. Father, we're, we love you, and it's in your Son's name, Jesus, we pray through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.